Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and good night, wherever you are in the world, and welcome to another episode of Endurance Chat. I am Michael Zalavari, also known as Floodman11, and today I am going to take you on a solo run-through of the World Endurance Championship round at Fuji, preview the next round of the championship coming up this weekend at Shanghai, and then catch up on all the action from the ELMS finale at Portimao. Now, firstly, you may have noticed that uh, A, I'm doing this one solo, and B, uh, we haven't had an episode out in quite a while. Uh, That is because uh, we have been lacking either the timing, the effort, or the opportunity to put some of these effort, uh, some of these episodes together. Rather, so far, what's been happening is we'll get a bunch of people on maybe a two out of three, so they'll have the opportunity and the time, but they won't have uh, the effort, which is my biggest problem. Or on the other hand, they'll have the time, but they won't have the opportunity. Um, but they've seen all the racing, so it's just been a bit of a mess as people have kind of progressed in their own lives and gone on to do other things and then come back into it it's just uh yeah we're not we don't quite have the same uh stability you could say as we have had uh in the past um so we'll we'll crack straight on into wrapping up the world endurance championship round at fuji a whole four weeks ago now it's amazing how quickly that time flies uh so of course uh if you unless you've been living under a rock you might not have realized that Toyota won the race at Fuji Speedway. Unsurprisingly, they took a 1-2 on home soil. But the surprising thing was they didn't quite have it all their own way. Of course, we've had the performance adjustments from the first round of the series at Silverstone. So it was the number seven who got hit with a much harder performance balance, um, losing a bunch of their hybrid capacity uh, and uh, basically meaning that they had less punch out of corners. And it actually caused a really fascinating battle with the number one Rebellion at the start of the race. Now, the Rebellion had actually jumped the car, uh, jumped the number seven on the start. And in fact, the Janetta as well, I think it was the number six, actually rounded up most of the cars on the first run to the the first corner. Um, But that fell down the order pretty quickly. But there was a fascinating battle at the very beginning of the race between the number seven uh, number seven Toyota and the number one Rebellion and it was only until traffic started coming into play that the number one Rebellion started to drop back and it did lose the position pretty quickly once the traffic uh, balked it out of the final corner and in fact it was just the first opportunity that the number seven had that was it Um, but in saying that, though, there was a very interesting give and take between the two because, of course, the Rebellion, uh, with the lack of hybrid, hybrid power, was much slower on corner exit. However, it had a much higher terminal velocity. And remember, this Rebellion as well had basically zero performance adjustments after not finishing or rather finishing outside the top 10, the race at Silverstone. So we're seeing basically the peak Rebellion pace versus what a hamstrung number seven Toyota hybrid would be. And it was, yeah, as I mentioned, very fascinating that the Rebellion was able to use its top speed advantage to stay ahead at at Fuji. Uh, ultimately, unfortunately, they didn't quite have it to stay ahead for the entire race. Um, and in the end, because of the, the way that the uh, performance adjustments had been done, the number eight had a pretty easy run throughout the race. They pretty well controlled it from the get-go. The number seven, once it passed the Rebellion, also was pretty well unopposed. It was, at the end of the race, uh, a two-lap gap between the two Toyotas and the Rebellion, uh, with the number eight winning by about 34 seconds in the end. Now, keep in mind, though, that was 
also with a uh, a rain shower in the middle of the race. So there is some semblance of whether maybe changing the shape of the race in the middle. Um, I'm struggling to remember if, whether or not there was a safety car, in fact. Um, but I'm not sure that there was. I will have to double check that. It doesn't appear that there was a safety car. Actually, no, that's a lie. There was a safety car because of some debris cleanup. That was with about two and a half hours left. So again, that may have pushed the order around, maybe uh, shelved the the positions um, and caused a bit of a lack in the competition at that stage in the race. So yeah, it was it was not necessarily an enthralling race at the front because of the because of that. But it was interesting to see how the handicap. Uh, came into effect. The question was, though, did the performance ha- adjustments do the job? So we we did see a little bit of a battle in the first stint, but it was very obvious that A, the number 8, as it had been adjusted less than the number 7, was going to be much quicker and was going to be untroubled, and B, that the Rebellion was still not at the pace of the Toyotas. As I mentioned, it was literally the first opportunity that the Toyota had through traffic, and it was gone. It was already past the rebellion, and that was it. Um, so there is a question there of how far is far enough, how far is too far, and it looks like maybe with the added uh, adjustments after the Fuji race, which we'll go into when we talk about Shanghai a little later on, um, that we might see maybe the best opportunity for rebellion to get a win uh, for the series. Um, we'll talk a bit more about that later on, but I don't quite think the performance adjustments are there just yet, and I don't think anyone will disagree with me on that, um, but it was a, a significant step in the right direction, and I think the guys at the Rebellion Garage will be very encouraged by the way that the ACO has taken the initiative to bring this performance adjustment to the LMP1 category to give them a bit more of a fighting chance at taking victories against the might of the Toyota factory hybrid uh, throughout the season. So LMP1 was a bit of a, a a medium sort of race. There wasn't really anything fantastic going on uh, after that first battle, um, and that was simply because the number eight just had the entire uh, the entire run of the the race from the very beginning to the very end. Uh, there is still big question marks over Janetta's pace. Uh, not so much outright pace because they actually set the second fastest lap throughout the entire race. Um, it was a Janetta, I think, at the hands of Charlie Robertson, who was faster than all the Rebellions and every single lap bar one of the Toyotas. So that's a very, very encouraging sign for A, Charlie Robertson, B, the Janetta program. But the thing is, it is still a very unpolished program. It's a very rough program. So the race, while it was encouraging for Janetta, was punctuated by a string of, oh, I, I don't, I, I guess you'd call them rookie errors again, or or engineering problems, or that sort of stuff. So there was a, a puncture down the main straight, which the driver at the time, I'm not sure who it was in the car, but he did a very, very good job of uh, cleaning, uh, staying on track, that, that is, and making sure that he didn't clean up the GTE AM car that he was passing, uh, which was a bit terrifying to watch, uh, watch the car basically jackknife almost on the main straight. Because that's what happened, I think, last year to um, the 
Spirit of Race car, I want to say. It was either the Spirit of Race or the Clearwater car. They had a puncher on the main straight and it pitched them into the wall. It was very lucky that the same thing didn't happen for the Janetta in this instance. Uh, on the other hand, they had a, a brake failure at the front of their car, which was plain as day to see throughout the race because you could see the brake dust under heavy braking at every single stop at the end of the main straight. So it was an inevitability that in the end they would have a brake failure. They had one or two shutdowns with the number five car. I think it was... Uh, Lucas Giotto uh, trying to restart the car out of turn one and saying, I have no idea what I'm doing. I, what, what do I need to do to start the car again? Uh, he ended up getting pulled behind the wall so that way he could start it off of the racetrack. And then there was a incident, uh, an administrative incident after the puncture where the number five car actually used too many tires. They exceeded their tire allocation for the weekend, earning them a hefty penalty um, in the realm of laps, I think. They ended up 16 laps down. So this is the thing, right? So they have outright pace over a single lap, but because of these infractions, these like uh, minimal mistakes, well, not even minimal mistakes, they're, they're unpolished racecraft or engineering craft or whatever you want to call it, uh, they are well off the pace when it comes to the actual uh, the actual race results. So they really, you know, the the number six car was five laps down or something like that, and then the number six uh, number five car was sixteen laps down. Uh, sorry, number six car was fourteen laps down. So both of them are extremely off the pace behind the LMP two leaders and, uh, you know, many laps down on the, the top of the field. So there is a question of how race-ready the team is still, and the only way that's going to change is over time as they get more practice in race conditions and uh, more events underneath their belt because it is still a young team in terms of LMP1 competition, which means that they're not necessarily going to have the the polish that a rebellion or in fact an smp or toyota or even some of the lmp2 teams like they're not going to have the same polish that an alpine or a jcdc are going to have compared to what the janetta has at the moment so there's there's a bit of a question mark over their professionalism i guess you'd say and it's it's a steep learning curve and it's going to take a a long time for janetta i think to get over that learning curve to the extent that I'm not sure that they're going to be on the pace in terms of a, a crew perspective and an, like a, a engineering and uh, data analysis perspective until maybe not even the end of the season. Like I think the gap is that big and that's how steep the learning curve is. Uh, and that's based on their results at Silverstone and their results at Fuji. Not necessarily their pace, as I mentioned, but the the, the polish on the team is just not there. And this is, you know, not necessarily... a. Uh, it's, good to, it's good to see them get into the field to start with, but I don't think... I don't think it's a good advertisement for the team or the car to have the back end not race ready. Uh, so that's how I'd put that. And, you know, things like, you know, not having enough cooling for the brakes, having the brakes blow up, uh, not not uh, falling within the tire allocation limits. Like, that's rookie stuff. Like, GTE AM teams are capable of doing that. GT3 teams are capable of doing that. Amateur GT3 teams are capable of doing that. I don't know why an LMP1 uh, outfit 
is incapable of following those guidelines. They're pretty set in stone. So that's that's something that the team will need to look at and that's something that needs to get fixed because they're no matter how quick they are, if they're making these sort of mistakes, they're not going to be competing for race wins. And it is as simple as that. So that was the way that the LMP1 race shook out. It was, a, as I mentioned, a two-lap lead at the end between the the Toyota, the two Toyotas over the Rebellion. Um, and then, yeah, ninth and 11th for the two Genettas down the field. LMP2, though. LMP2 was an absolutely cracking race. We had a amazing difference in strategies between the 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 string of oracles at the top of the field so we had the jumbo uh, t- uh racing team netherland car the high class racing car the jota and jcdc efforts and the united autosports car all within a shot of the win heading into that last stint and it was really the the moxie of the racing team netherland team that got them that win in the end they took the win their second race in an orica and they're already taking race wins now i'll touch on that a bit later on but that's a big jump for the team to be able to get into a new chassis get familiar with it and then start plugging in race wins and that's a fantastic achievement i think it was the first time the netherlands anthem had been ever played at a world sports car or world endurance championship event, which is pretty cool. And uh, having people, uh, the Europeans, wake up during the race and see the jumbo car in such a good position, it was kind of funny to to get that response from people as it happened. Um, but the, the reason that they got that ascendancy towards the end of the race was because Fritz van Erd, who had had a shocker at Fuji last year when he was put in the car in wet conditions with maybe not the right tyre, um, on this occasion, he was one of the better AMs in the uh, in the cool weather and in the rain, and he actually managed to finish his drive time up with about two hours left in the race. It was extraordinary. Like everyone else was talking about when they would put their AM driver in and finishing off that driver time, and the racing team Netherlands car had already done it and had already gotten it out of the way. So that meant that when the full course yellows came out for uh for debris call up uh for debris cleanup rather um with about two hours left there was already uh there was no need for De, uh, for van Erd to get back in the car he was already done his drive time so they could go to the end with john eric Verden and fritz van Erd, which was amazing oh sorry nick de Vries, rather um so that's why they they were able to take that ascendancy it was amazing to see them just rise to the front of the field as teams like high class who did the opposite strategy who went till the very end to get mark patterson into his stint they dropped away so that was a really really interesting interplay there um between the different strategies for the teams now i want to question what high class did because they had um uh, Kenta Yamashita, who's a Toyota test driver, who's really, really familiar with Fuji, and he had a great run in the high-class racing car, though. He was putting in some extraordinary laps, and in fact, in fact, if I go and have a look at the top 40 lap times, thanks to our good friend Oliver Trevelis over on the Sports Car Engineering blog, which just came out today, and you should definitely have a look at this, um, he's done graphs of the uh, top 40 lap times for the LMP2 class in the dry and the wet, and then comparing the AM driver times to them as well. Now, if you look at the um, at Kenta Yamashita's times in the high-class racing Orica, uh, he was actually in the mix in with the likes 
of uh in the in the likes of the Jota Sport car and uh the number 22 United Autosports car so not the best outright no nowhere near the likes of um the Guido Vandergaarder Nick De Vries jumbo jumbo car but he was definitely well within the mix and that's likely due in part to the fact that he was running Goodyear tires as opposed to the Michelins. In fact, he was the far, the most consistent, fastest runner on the Goodyear tires. Um, but the thing is, I've never seen the pros to the very top and then stack your AM driver in for the last section. I've never seen that strategy work in LMP2. I've seen it work in GTE. Like, we've seen it as recently as Le Mans for, uh, for the... Um, GTM Keating Motorsports car, which did basically that strategy. They put, they stacked their pro drivers, Blake Mullen and Felipe Fraga, in the first half of the race to get over that shelf when there was an ev- eventual safety car, and then had Ben Keating in when the track was at its most grippy, when the car ha- was at its most um, stable, and that allowed him to do the last few stints in relative ease, besides holding off. I think it was um, Jerome uh, Jörg Bergmeister in the uh, in the high class. Sorry, not the high class racing. The Project One car at the end of the race. Um, but in LMP2, I've never seen that strategy work, and I've seen it tried a few times. I think one example I can think of is the 2015 race at Bahrain, where Extreme Speed Motorsports in the Ligier tried to run that strategy with Pipo Durrani and Christopher Cummins. And they did not have enough enough of a lead for Cummins to remain on the podium in that race, let alone go for the win. And the same thing happened with the LMP2 race here. High-class racing, after being in the mix for a lot of the middle area with Fjordback and uh, Yamashita, really aggressively fell away when Patterson went in the car because he was up against all the other professional drivers. In the end, they ended up finishing, I think it was fifth uh, in the uh, in the class um, behind... Uh, United Autosports, Jackie Chan DC Racing, and uh, Yoda Sports. Now, the Yoda Sport JCDC battle at the end of the race was a really, really fascinating one as well because it was a, a battle on the timing screens and in the pit lane as opposed to outright on track. So I think it was the JCDC car was on waning tires and was ahead of the Yoda Sport car. And it was, uh, I think it was Alex Davison who was charging down that gap and they managed to jump the... JCDC car in the pit lane um, on separate laps. And it was really, really cool to see that sort of come to come together at the end. But ultimately, no one could touch the number 20, uh, 29 car is the race team Netherlands car at the end of the race. But in a post-race uh, technical breach, um, I believe that the number... 37 car, the Yoda Sport car... No, sorry, the number 38 car, which is the Yoda Sport car... Um, had a neutral um, uh, a neutral switch on the outside that was unable to disconnect the transmission. So that's part of the uh, safety systems on the car. Basically, when the marshals approach a car, there's a, you can activate a switch on the outside of the car that can cut the engine and, or cut the transmission or disconnect the transmission in this case. And it looks like the routine check on this part... Um, failed. So the button didn't actually turn off the transmission, disconnect the transmission. So that was an immediate disqualification for the car. No relegation to the back of the grid, no time penalty. It was immediate disqualification. So that bumped everyone up a 
uh, a spot from their original finishing positions, meaning that, um, in fact, it was the JCDC car who finished second and United Autosports in third. Now, United Autosports had a really peculiar race. They were very much in the mix with Phil Hansen and uh, Felipe Albuquerque and Oliver Jarvis, but they suffered the same electrical cutout problem that plagued them in both races at Silverstone, both the ELMS race and the WEC race. They suffered an electrical problem that cut out power to the engine around uh, the veil corner. Now, in this race at Fuji, it was heading into the last sector, so just coming up the hill into the final corner, and it cut out two or three times. Now, I'm not sure if that's a relic of what hap- what was happening to the Oricas at the beginning of the 2017 P2 cycle, where we had- saw electrical cutouts aplenty. I'm not sure if this is a relic of that uh, issue, or if that's a new issue that's happening to just this car, but it's now three for three in races uh, in the Orica spec, where the United Autosports have suffered an electrical gremlin that's possibly cost them a chance at the win. United Autosports were looking very, very good in that middle section as well, with Hansen completing his drive time very early. So, yeah, I'm I'm not sure if this is a, a LMP2 electronics problem or if it's a United electronics problem, um, but that's something that they need to sort out because they've been robbed of two very good finishes because of that. Well, I mean... They were robbed of one at Fuji. Uh, Silverstone was a bit hard to say because it was lap two where they had that problem. Overall, though, in LMP2, the big news story, of course, was the the Racing Team Netherlands um, win. And while I've got a chance here, I actually want to talk about the implication of that win and what that has on the spread of performance in the LMP2 class. So they that's basically a... I wouldn't say it's a static driver lineup because, of course, there's been a bit of a change um, between uh, between Silverstone and Fuji, but that's basically the same team uh, in terms of drivers as it was last season where they were running the Delara. Um, it's being operated by a different team, so I think it's, uh, it's uh, TDS Racing that run the car now. But at the end of the day, the performance of the drivers should be in relatively the same window. So for them to go from a bottom of mid-pack team in the Delara to immediately winning races in the Orica shows you how the how disparate the performance is between those two chassis. And even to extend that as well, there's a similar question around the Ligier. Now, we've seen a convergence of LMP2 teams towards the Orica in the last two seasons to the point where in the ELMS there is literally two Ligiers and a Delara in a field of 17 P2 cars. So that's 14 Oricas now. Um, we've seen United Autosports make the switch. We've seen IDEC, mode, uh, IDEC Racing make the switch. We've seen High Class Racing make the switch. We've seen JCDC. Well, they started in Oricas, but Racing Team Netherlands make the switch. It's very telling how much better the Orica is compared to the other chassis, which were meant to be homologated to be a, of a extremely similar performance window. They were meant to be the same, right? Um, so as we've seen this convergence towards the Orica, it kind of calls into the question the uh, robustness or the integrity of the LMP2 homologation process and that's a question that's something that we'll probably see talking uh, about a lot more come next year when we're seeing 
a drop in LMP2 performance to accommodate the hypercar class and then further on to 2021 and 2022 when we see the new LMP2 cycle of regulations. Now, while there's been an explosion in LMP2 competitiveness because of the P217 regulations, it has also seen a convergence, as I mentioned, towards a specific chassis, which is, I guess, kind of the result when you limit chassis options and limit upgrade cycles in an effort to cut costs, you, you will see a convergence to whatever is the best solution. I mean, even the LMP1 class saw that with the hybrid era. You know, you had these different solutions from different manufacturers. You had a, a flywheel uh, V6 turbo diesel versus a twin uh, versus a twin turbo V4 uh, battery versus a supercapacitor V8 naturally aspirated machine in the Toyota and then within three seasons, they'd all converged to the best technology, which was the battery technology. We've seen this again in LMP2, but towards its specific chassis. So that's something that I think should be looked at in more detail come further regulation changes and the the, the restructuring of LMP2 for the next season and for the new LMP2 regs in the future. Because we, you know, we joked about it when it first happened that it would be Formula Orica, and yet here we are with... Almost literally Formula Orica. Um, so yeah, that's something that should be looked at a bit further on. Next up at Fuji, the GTE Pro Race was pretty sick. I'm not going to lie. It, there was a, a, a little bit of a worry from me personally that the GTEO battles, uh, GTEO, GTE Pro battles would be a little uh, muted considering that they'd lost you know, two thirds of the class, well, sorry, a third of the class, basically. But even with just the six cars on track, they really put on a show and it was very much a uh, a classic, you know, GTE dogfight, the first stint of the race where you had all six cars basically line astern. It was pretty cool. But as the race went on, it became clear that there was one group of cars, or sorry, one manufacturer of cars that were the better cars to be in and it wasn't in fact the cars that won the race it was the Aston Martins who were the ones winning and had the ascendancy but the best lap times were all set by Ferraris now this is a bit of a complex uh complex sort of thing for me because during the race it never seemed that the Ferrari really had that much pace you know there was uh, glimpses from the 51 and the 57 but really what strikes strikes me as surprising is that they never really had the ascendancy in the times when they needed the pace you know they were loitering in the mid to back pack and then the only car that they passed in the end was the number 91 pole sitting Porsche who'd got a drive-through penalty for track limit abuse so they weren't quick when it counted so on the other hand the Aston Martins and the 92 Porsche were able to make hay while the sun shone and then hold their advantage when the wet weather came and I think that's really the telling argument here and if you look at the the lap time charts um, that uh, Oliver's put together on the sports car engineering blog you can see that the Ferrari especially um, the number 71 Ferrari which I think actually finished higher up the order oh sorry no it didn't um, either way both Ferraris have a significant cliff where their lap times drop away much more than their rivals much more than the Porsches or the Aston Martins 
So I wonder if the longevity of the tire on the Ferrari chassis is a question mark. I wonder if there's um, that the Ferrari doesn't have the ability to hold onto its tires throughout an entire stint and thus experiences a wide variance of lap times because on outright pace, the Ferraris are much quicker than anything else. And even their, well, I think in fact, the number 51's lap times were faster than the relative number of laps let me try that again. So there is no point on the lap time graph where the number 51's lap times drop below an Aston Martin's corresponding fastest lap. So for example, the 10th fastest lap for the Ferrari is faster than the 10th fastest lap for the Aston Martin. And that's true across the board. However, you know, they never really troubled the front of the field. So in the end, they finished they finished a lap down on the Aston Martin in the end, although that's a little um, a little misleading seeing as the Aston Martin was, uh, ahead of the field before, um, before the overall leader had crossed the line while the rest of the cars were behind it. So in reality, it was the, the number 51 car was about 30 to 40 seconds behind second place. So that's, that's not an insignificant gap after six hours and with apparently having the best car in the field as well. Comparing that to the rain, uh, there's there's a lot more variance in the rain simply because of the rain itself um, being a factor, uh, and of course in that as well. I think this is the this is the crux of that that question actually. The Aston Martins didn't actually change tires to inters or slick uh, to inters or wets rather, whereas some of the other teams did, and in that instance, that may be where they found the pace or rather where they bought the stop, where they didn't take that extra pit stop to get back onto dry tires. So I guess that's a better strategy play from Aston Martin. So yeah, and again, the question is, you know, how much of that advantage was earned versus how much of that advantage were given. But in the end, strategy is a part of the motor race as well. And the Ferrari lap time drop-off isn't as aggressive as, say, the Porsches, who lost a lot more time during the through the wet conditions, which is a little surprising um, considering, you know, it's Porsche we're talking about. So this kind of brings an interesting question to the next part of the season where we might see a bit more of an adjustment. Because remember, of course, Porsche have a brand new car and they've already taken a race win, sure. They took a podium at uh, at Fuji. They got second place there. Um, but they're still learning a new car, which means that the BO, pardon me, the BOP is still learning a new car. So we could see Aston Martin and Porsche even get advanced closer to where Ferrari's pace is, which if current trends persist, would see Ferrari fall even further behind come a full race distance. And, you know, we've, we, we kind of laugh at the likes of James Collado who complains about BOP or says, oh, when, even when we do get BOP, something happens and it ruins our race. But the thing is, when you have the pace, you have to use it. You have to get those results. And this is something that has plagued Ferrari in the last few seasons. They have found ways to lose races. And this is another example. They were easily the fastest cars on track on on lap times and even in consistency. The, the graphs that have been put together show that, but they've not capitalized on that good pace. They came home with fourth and fifth. That's kind of nowhere. So as the series progresses, as the season progresses rather, we're going to see possibly Porsche and Aston Martin 
get pulled closer to that Ferrari pace, which means that Ferrari are going to be even less likely to take wins. So, yeah, I'm not sure. It's it's going to be a very interesting season for GTE Pro um, as, as we look towards the next event at Shanghai. So in Fuji, it was the 95 Aston Martin that got the win over the 92 Porsche and the 97 Aston Martin. So double Aston Martin podium. And then of course, the two Ferraris and the number 91 with that drive-through penalty in the first into the race, which kind of killed it from the very, very beginning. So finally at Fuji, we had the GTM class. Now the GTM has been awesome this season. I know it's only been two races, but the GTM has just been really, really cool to watch because of the vast variety of the cars that we're seeing and the, and the drivers we're seeing. We've seen 11 cars in GTM, which is really, really cool. But in the GTM race, it was a bit frantic, a bit held to skelter. There was a lot of passing up and down the grid and there was nothing more frantic than the first lap crash between the number 88 and the number 98. So the Proton Competition Porsche and the Aston Martin racing Aston Martin. Now, the the pain that the number 98 car must be going through on a regular basis is kind of off the hook, because if you remember, they have not had the most pleasant of, of runs at the tail end of last series season, um, culminating in a DNF at Le Mans, if I recall correctly. And it was, in fact, um, Satoshi Hoshino in the number 88 who is infamous for the incident with the Corvette in the Porsche Curves at Le Mans, who was the one who instigated that contact, which caused the number 98 to drop to the tail of the field. So, again, there's a little bit of a, a angst, I guess you'd say, um, in the response to that accident, in response to Satoshi Hoshino. Um, so, we'll see how much that progresses. I like it was not it was not a good move it was a big dive bomb at the the hairpin at the bottom of the circuit which resulted in contact which ended up damaging the cars so it was a bit of a a a, a black mark on uh, another black mark on Hoshino's record I guess you'd say so not ideal but on the other hand there was a a great string of battles throughout the race, and both of them centered around one K Cosolino in the number 70 uh, MR Racing Ferrari. Firstly, he had a fantastic battle with Giancarlo Fischer-Keller, which went on for about four or five laps, which was banging doors, over-unders, um, like chopping apexes, blocking everything. It was a fantastic battle to watch, um, and in the end, K Cosolino prevailed uh, over Fisichella, but not without losing his wing mirror, which very finally resulted in a dark red replacement door fitted to the white and blue trimmed Ferrari. It looked like a, a beat up uh, junkyard car. It was kind of hilarious. Uh, and then there was a second battle between Cosolino and Matt Campbell late on in the race to take the ascendancy for the last position in the podium, I think. So the last position of the podium was at fourth place. It was, in fact, fourth place, not for the third place on the rostrum. So either way, though, uh, Keiko Zolino, fantastic race. Uh, 
And this would have been a track that he's familiar with from uh, the Asian Law 1 series. So f- for those who haven't heard the name Kei Cozzolino before, he was one of the key drivers in the car guy racing car at this year's Le Mans. And they won that entry to Le Mans through winning the GT class at the uh, Asian Le Mans series last series- season. So these Asian, this Asian swing of the championship while we're in Fuji and Shanghai, he should really come to the fore. And he was one of the better silver drivers at Le Mans. Um, and I think Chris Washer especially was very excited for, to see him at Le Mans. And he's rolled off of that uh, momentum very nicely. And he's still doing very, very good jobs in the WEC. Uh, but really throughout this race, there was one team that just controlled the race from the very beginning and that was the number 90 TF Sport Aston Martin taking their first win in WC competition after being so close so many times last year, last season rather. And it was really Charlie Eastwood's stint that set up the latter half of the race in the dry as the car, sorry, as the track dried off. Um, but on top of that as well, Sally Yolok was the fastest, most consistent bronze driver in the field, much more so than uh, the likes of Thomas Floor or uh, uh, Satoshi Hoshino, who we've already made mention of. Even um, even the likes of Francois Perotto, uh were just a bit too far off the pace to really challenge um, Sally Yolok. So Sally Yolok putting in some great laps as a bronze driver and really making that car untouchable throughout the race. Um, the remainder of the podium was completed by AF Corsa taking a second place to go with their first place at Silverstone and Team Project 1 in the number 57 car, I believe. Yep, that's the one. So not the car that um, was the championship winner last season. This was the second car, the new car, the Keating car, basically. And that was a great way for them to respond after their uh, torrid event at Silverstone where the flywheel broke just before qualifying. And so they were unable to start qualifying, started the race a lap down and were basically nowhere throughout the entire race. So a really, really good return for form for them. But there was an interesting point made by David Hennemeyer Hansen, who was the driver, the silver driver of the uh, 56 Team Project 1 car. He had a bit of a, I don't want to call it a rant, because it wasn't quite rant status, but he just very bluntly made the point that a number of the teams in GTM were electing to field a silver driver in the qualifying session, indicating that they are maybe not sil- not deserving of a silver rating. And by that, I mean that they are fake gold or a fake pro. Now, this is a very interesting point to make because the GTE AM regulations state that when qualifying, one of the drivers must be the bronze rated driver. Of course, you must have a sil- uh, bronze and a second amateur driver in a GTE AM car. So, ideally, or at least you'd expect that if you are forced to use the bronze driver as one of your two drivers for a two-lap average in qualifying, you would expect that the other driver be your pro, whether that be your platinum or your gold driver, um, because they are the going to be the best driver to bring up the two-lap average to compensate for the bronze. 
But David Hennemeyer Hansen made the point that a number of dry, a number of cars elected to run their silver driver um, as their second qualifi- qualifying driver. Namely, it was the uh, I think the the one he was most annoyed at, I guess, would be the Felipe Ferrer, uh, the the t- Team Project One team car, and then uh, AF Corsa with Nicholas Nielsen, and then the two Aston Martins of uh, Charlie Eastwood and Ross Gunn as the as the silver drivers. Now. If we take a bit of a, a deeper dive into these drivers, um, I guess you'd you'd say uh, Roscon is a Aston Martin factory driver. He's a young factory driver. Felipe Fraga is a Brazilian stock ta- stock car championship winner. Um, Charlie Eastwood is another AMR factory young driver, uh, and uh, Nicholas Nielsen is, I think, along the same lines as a as a um, uh, a Ferrari factory driver. He was by far he he he's driving by far better than any silver has any right to. And if you look at again the um graphs put together by Trevor Osaurus uh in the sports car engineering blog, you can very clearly see uh that the likes of Nicholas Nielsen and Charlie Eastwood and Ross Gunn are much quicker than the rest of the silvers in that class, uh, especially, you know, what you call the true silvers, like the Francesco Castellacci's or the Andrew Watson's or, you know, those sort of guys um, who you'd expect to be more like silver. In fact, of those, uh, Kay Cozzolino is, in fact, the fastest of all those silvers in that uh in these lap times that we've got here in front of me so that kind of indicates that there might maybe some level of uh how do i put this delicately some level of uh advantage that is being taken out of the rules through the driver rating system so we're yeah it's it's a bit of a it's a very complicated question because there's no easy answer you can't just it would be unjust to be overly draconian with the... Oh, maybe that's not quite correct. It's very hard to quantify the experience of a young factory driver versus the potential for, for pace. So we've seen in the past the likes of, say, Julian Anlauer or uh, someone along those lines... Um, uh, Matteo Cairoli even be a a f- obnoxiously fast silver, not because they've got a lot of experience, but because they're young and they're factory drivers. Um, the FIA system lacks robustness to deal with that situation, in my opinion. But again, I think as as GG likes to put it, you got to think about whether or not these things pass the stink test. So maybe, you know, uh, a pair of AMR factory drivers who are lapping a clear second ahead of the other silvers in the class, maybe they should be bumped up to gold. You know, maybe that would have been a good thing to do before the start of the series. But, oh well, um, it does t- it does put on some pretty good racing uh, to have these, the, the drivers of that level of quality uh, racing in a pro-am class uh 
against the likes on one hand of former F1 drivers, on the other hand of actual amateurs. So it's a really interesting mix. Um, whether or not that's good for the series or good for the sport, that's another question for another time. In the end, it was, as I mentioned, the TF Sport, Aston Martin taking their first win in uh, GTM, WC competition, ahead of the AF Corsa car, backing up their win from Silverstone with the second place, and then Team Project 1 in third. MR Racing finished up fourth ahead of the Dempsey Proton Porsche. Then it was the number 54 AF Corsa car in sixth. The second of the Team Project 1 car, seventh. Golf Racing, Dempsey Proton 88. Red River Sport, who had another sort of anonymous race, and then the Aston Martin number 98 so Aston Martin's bookending the field in GTEM so that kind of wraps up the Fuji race there was a little again a little bit of a shower in the middle of it which kind of threw things up in the air but it was a decent race it was a a steady race I wouldn't necessarily say that it was a, a cracking race so you know nothing on Fuji 2016 for example but it was still a decent race uh decent race to to watch now there's a few uh, drivers that you could possibly nominate for driver of the day across the field. So um, I'll throw out a few names. I'll say maybe Kenta Yamashita in the high-class racing cars or Nick DeFries in the Racing Team Netherlands uh, Orica. Also, you could look at Charlie Robertson for his cracking lap, the fast, the second fastest lap of the entire race, let's not forget. Um, but I would stick my vote behind Kay Cozzolino for his um, for overcoming both Giancarlo Fisichella and Matt Campbell um, in battles in the GTM race. He was tenacious in his passing and in his racecraft, and it's something I really, really love to see. Someone who can think through a move and set it out a few corners ahead of time instead of being spontaneous and obnoxious and maybe diving in somewhere that he shouldn't. So Kay Cozzolino gets my vote. And if you have any other suggestions, you can argue with me in the comments. So next event on the WEC calendar is the WEC four hours of Shanghai. So we again, uh, Shortening this event from the six hours that has been traditionally to a four-hour event, honestly, I don't mind that for this track. I don't necessarily think Shanghai has produced the best racing across its tenure as a WEC track, so I'm not that annoyed that the race is a little shorter. Um, Shanghai is, of course, a very important commercial track for the likes of JCDC and you know the the sports car market. In, Shang- uh, in China, so it's an important track from a commercial standpoint, so I can understand why they keep the race there, um, despite potentially other better track alternatives around the world. But it, at the end of the day, Shanghai has produced flashes of good racing, and so hopefully the quality of the field will produce a good race uh, this coming weekend. So we've got 31 cars on the entry list uh, this weekend. Um, so there's a an additional Proton car, uh, so uh, that's being run with the uh, trio that ran at Le Mans in the number 78 car. So it's um, Philippe Prete, Louis Prete, and Vincent Abril. So the trio of French, I, I think they're actually all monogasque. 
That'll be very interesting. They didn't do too badly at Le Mans, if I can recall correctly as well. They, in fact, finished only two places behind the sister number 77 car. But remember, of course, that 77 car did run into problems throughout the race. So that will be an interesting car to watch and see how they go for the weekend. And bolsters up the GCM field to 12 cars. 12 cars uh, featuring, I think, six Porsches as well. So that's a that's a hefty grid, a, a hefty grid for uh, GTEM. Um, otherwise, there's been a few driver changes. So uh, Chris Dyson is going to come back into the number six car, um, which will move uh, Luca Giotto, I think, out of the mix. Um, and then the number 88 Proton car has uh, picked up Thomas Preening and, uh, oh, hang on, there's not a confirmed driver at this stage next to Thomas Preening in the number 88 car. That may be because I'm just looking at an outdated entry list, so I'll try and find a more current entry list for the number 88 car. Um, but otherwise, it should be pretty well similar across the board for um the as far as driver lineups and team lineups go um there shouldn't be too many changes um no it's still tba so i guess we'll find out on race day uh who is going to be driving in the number 88 car that has kind of been the revolving door of the proton competition seats throughout the series so we'll see who drops in there now there's going to be a bit more adjustments in the LMP1 class after the uh, the results from Fuji. Now, there's a bit a, a bit of ma- uh, maths trickery going on here. Now, the rules state in the performance adjustments that they're based off a maximum point deficit of 40 points. So that's basically meaning that the Toyota's uh, sorry, whoever's in front, the maximum point gap that will be considered for performance adjustments is 40 points. So if you're outside 40 points, um, they're not going to adjust you up any further. It's basically 40 points behind is like the shelf. So already, only two races into the series, we have hit that threshold. The number six, Janetta, is 41 and a half points behind the Toyota, both Toyotas, in fact, the 86, uh, sorry, the 6 and the, let me try that again, the 7 and the 8. Now, this is, on one hand, uh, on one hand, this does give the Janetta a significant advantage in terms of lap pace, but on the other hand, it does show just how far away from the factory teams the Janetta is. Um, on the other hand, the number one, the number five are both around this, or they're both on the same points. So they should both have the, about the same handicap for the, the four hours of Shanghai. Now, Ollie's run the numbers for us, and he is expecting, based on the way that it was done at Fuji and extrapolating the maths from Fuji, that the, uh, the pace over a lap should be about one second slower for the Rebellion number one, the Janetta number five, and about two and a half to three seconds 
for the Toyotas. Now, the way they're going to achieve that is going to be very different. So they add weight to the non-hybrid cars and knock off hybrid boost and revs for the hybrid cars. Um, But that does actually put a very interesting spin on where the car's paces will be placed for Shanghai. Um, uh, Ollie even suggests that Trevor was... Sorry, let me try that again. Ollie even suggests that the Rebellion would would start on pole because he's expecting it to have a better outright pace than the Toyotas. So... This will be a very interesting race. I think this might be the the best chance that Rebellion or the other privateers, the Genetics, have at achieving a race win based on the level of the handicap. Um, as the race, as the series goes on, of course, that handicap may come back to the privateers, which would then see them jump ahead of the Toyotas, which would see them lose that handicap advantage. So there'll be a bit of a, a seesaw effect. But this could be really the telling moment for the performance enhancements, uh, performance adjustments rather, for the series to see whether or not they can actually get the numbers right to give the Rebellions and the Genetas a chance. The second question I have is, can the Genetas actually put a clean race in? It is a four-hour race. Um, they are still looking for a clean race from one of their cars. So the question is, can they get there? And I would hazard a guess that the answer to that question is still no. Uh, I don't... From what we've seen at Fuji and at, Shang, uh, at Silverstone, rather, we haven't seen the Genetas put a race together properly. And it'll ha- it'll take a long time, I think, for them to finally get it because it is a big step up in competition and they can't make rookies' mistakes. So maybe not Shanghai. Maybe next year. Maybe not this season. I'm not... I'd have to see a big improvement from Jeanette to be able to confidently say they're going to be mixing it with the Rebellions for an extended period of time. Looking to LMP2 for the next race, it's an absolute madhouse. There is only one team with two podiums from the first two races, and that is Jumbo Racing Team Netherlands. So that means it could be anyone's race. Cool Racing, you'd you hate to say it, but they are kind of handicapped by having Alexander Coigny uh, as their bronze driver um, because Borger is an absolute wild man behind the wheel. He's easily a super silver and a duo of um, Borger and Lapierre is a kind of terrifying prospect, which is kind of how they took the win at Silverstone. Add Kony to that mix and the average pace of the car drops a significant amount. Um, Alpine had a shocker last time out. They finished sixth. United have had engine problems. The Goodyear tires aren't necessarily up to speed yet. Jota just got disqualified. It could literally be anyone's race. And going into it, you'd have to say that of the cars, the Jumbo car looks the most secure and the most likely to take a win. Now, if you'd said that to me at any point last season, we would have laughed your head off. But that's how far the Orica chassis pushes the performance of the team. So we'll see how that goes. Now, GTE Pro, the question there is, do Ferrari take advantage of their pace? I'm not sure if there has been any performance adjustments in uh, in the Pro class. I'm not sure if there has been uh, a change to the BOP. So I can't definitively say whether or not 
um, Ferrari are going to be still at the top of their um, at the top of the game, but it's discouraging if you're a Ferrari fan the fact that there's uh, there's a lack of result for all the pace that the cars have had. Um, so that's something to keep an eye on. And then GTM, like who's who's going to be brave and make a prediction in GTM? Like honestly, it's impossible. Um, so I'm not even going to try. We're just going to skip straight over GTM because there's 12 cars. And honestly, I can't fathom trying to pick from 12 cars. Now, the last part of this puzzle is the Shanghai circuit. And so the Shanghai circuit, of course, is another one of the first wave of the, the Tilka Asia tracks, um, along with like Sepang and even Fuji to an extent is a, a, a Herman Tilka Asia based track. The first sector is very stop-start. You've got that long looping turn one, two complex, and then the hairpin at turn five before it starts to get into a bit more of a flow and a rhythm through the middle sector. And then the long, 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 long back straight that brings you down towards the final complex of corners. Now, this question, this puts into question again, the Janetta's braking performance because they didn't get through a six-hour race at Fuji, which only has really one significant stop. I mean, sure, it's a very significant stop at the end of that front straight, but to have to go through that at Shanghai where the straight is much longer and the braking pressure is much higher and then to do it again only three corners later when you're into turn one and then again into turn five, it's not painting a very pretty picture if you're a Janetta brake rotor. So that's going to be a challenge for them. Hopefully they can get their brake cooling sorted out to stop their brakes dying. Um, But really, this... This sort of track where it's very low on the down, like on the overall downforce level, because really the only high downforce corners are like turn seven, eight, nine, the swing onto the back straight, and you maybe say turn one. This may be the best chance for Rebellion to take a win with the long straights, the stop start nature of it. That's that's really going to be their bread and butter. Otherwise, everything else is up in the air. I honestly couldn't call a race win out of any of these classes at this stage. Um, so that's going to be the the way it's going to shape, shape up um, at Shanghai. Uh, so, third round of the series, we're going to be through one-third of the races after the Shanghai race, but not anywhere near to one-third of the running, because remember, we've got the eight hours of Bahrain, the ten, uh, the ten hours of Sebring, and then the 24 hours of Le Mans in the second half of the series. So still plenty of racing to come once we get over this hump. Okay, and for that, we are done with the WEC. Now we're going to move on to the European Le Mans series finale at Portimao. The four hours of Portimao to round out this crazy 2019 ELMS season. And it has been a cracking season from start to finish in the ELMS. Uh, It was really fascinating the way the season panned out and also the way that it uh brought us into this finale because we had f- uh five mon auto entries up for grab still lucic racing had confirmed one with their gte championship victory 
already uh, that they confirmed at the last round of the series in Spa Francorchamps. But both LMP2 slots and the LMP3 slot for winning that championship were up in the air and it could really have gone either way. And that's not to mention as well, in the Michelin Le Mans Cup, there was a, uh, a championship spot up for grab as well into Le Mans for the win of the GTE championship in that class as well. Uh, so I'll give you, again, just to remind you, the picture of the championships heading in. So between... Uh, in LMP2, it was really between iXport and G-Drive, with Graf kind of just sitting outside of the mix. They, I think, didn't quite have a mathematical chance of getting the win, but they had a chance of grabbing one of those Le Mans invites should uh, iXport uh, fall by the wayside. In LMP3, uh, it was a straight-up dogfight between Euro International and Inter-Europol. They came into the event on exactly the same points, and whoever beat the other was going to win that championship and that coveted Le Mans spot. And then in GTE, uh, well, GTE, because it's the ELMS, we already had that confirmation of Losers Racing winning the championship and winning that spot. And then it was a question of, could Dempsey Proton hold on to that second Le Mans invite ahead of the likes of JMW Motorsport, Kessel Racing, and Spirit of Race. So there was a fair bit to play for in the GTE class as well. A lot of cars in the mix there. Um, and remember, this Le Mans Auto invite means you don't have to mess around waiting for the ACO to invite you, which is where United ran into trouble last season uh, with the 2019 Le Mans. So they only won the single confirmed entry through the Asian Le Mans series, and that was the only entry they were originally given until the ATO expanded the garages with two temporary garages to accommodate a further entry for uh, United Auto Sports. So that didn't work out, and that worked out in their favor in the end. But getting it confirmed and getting it squared away at this stage means that you can have much less of a problem with sorting out your programs for next year and sponsors and all that sort of stuff. Because if you can go to someone and say, I am racing at Le Mans next year, will you sponsor that? It's a much better proposition than I am waiting on the ACO to uh, to invite me to this race next year. Uh, can you sponsor that? So that's a very, very big deal for, uh, for teams to play for, especially teams that may not have actually been to Le Mans before. So let's jump straight into the race. And unfortunately, the jumping straight into the race uh, saw a red flag for a first lap incident between the Carlin Delara, the Oregon team LMP3 uh, Ligier, uh, Norma rather, the United Autosports Ligier, and then three of the GTE, uh, GTE cars, the number 83 Kessel Racing, number 88 Proton Competition Racing, and the number 77 Dempsey Proton Racing cars, get tied up in a first lap uh, tangle around the crest of turn four, which was where the pain all started. So what happened is as the field squeezed its way through the slow turn three hairpin and then back up the hill to turn four, which is a bit more sweeping, there was a slight touch between the Carlin Delara of Jack Manchester and another car that sent Jack Manchester around in the center of the track, and then he came to rest on the racing line. With the field coming up behind him over the crest, there was little that any of the following cars could do. It was the Oregon team, number 10, Norma, that went right into the back of the Lara. That then had a secondary impact with the number three United Auto Sports Ligier, 
and then the uh, Carlin Delara had further impacts with the number 77 Porsche, which basically parked the entire rear end of the car. You could see right into the engine bay of that car. Um, and then also caught up the number 88 Proton car and the 83 Kessel racing car, number 66 JMW motorsport car. Now, with the red flag, they they took a lengthy period of time to ensure the safety of the drivers that were getting extracted from the cars. Um, so that must the the work of the safety crews and the medical officers at the track must be stressed. They did a phenomenal job getting everyone out of the cars safely and uh, getting them onto either the medical center or hospital for further checks. Um, as far as I am aware. All of the drivers are doing okay. And that is especially good to hear in Jack Manchester's case, seeing as he only just came back from an injury sustained at a at the seat of a car. Um, so that was uh, warming to hear that no one was seriously injured. But once that had all shaken out, it was kind of an awe oh, feeling for the GTE field. So in the GTE field, it had taken out the... Standing second place runner in the championship, the number 88 car, which I think was also in that fight for the championship. No, the 88 car was the revolved door, so they weren't, didn't have stake in the championship. But also, they took out the number 83 Kessel Racing car. They had dragged that car to the pits. It was driven into the pits. Um, they weren't allowed to touch it because it was parked firmer conditions under the red flag. And then as soon as they were given the all clear, an hour later with three minutes left for the restart, they dived underneath the car to try and look at repairing it. And straight away, hands went up, up above the head. They made a cross and that was it. It was done. It was waiting an hour to find out that the car was going to have to be retired. It was a little distressing to see that. And they were in a good position to, to have a go at the 77 Proton Racing car for that Le Mans invite. Remember, that car was the all-girl car, and they had taken a pair of podiums throughout the season, so they were really looking at looking like they would be a challenger. And then finally, the JMW Motorsport car was able to be repaired, but they completed their repairs, a, I think it was two laps after the safety car had already come in, started the race again. So they were chasing fourth position to overcome the 77 car and they had five there were the fifth car in the line of ge cars and the rest of the field the loose racing car ebi motors uh, the team project one car and the second of the castle racing cars and the spirit of race they were all untouched so they were uh not looking likely to overcome that barrier so it really uh, put a bit of a mute on the GTE battle, especially looking for that Le Mans invite because it, it kind of killed the killed the class, or killed the race before it even properly got started uh, for the GTEs. On the other hand, though, it did throw up a very interesting question around driver times. Now, now normally in the ACO operated series and, and in IMSA operated series, the driving time the clock counts down under red flag, which means the driving time also counts down under red flag. Now, in this instance, I believe they actually revised the target um, to suit the hour-long shortened race that it was in the end. Um, but there was a, a really uh, compelling question of how are the, the cars who have already done their drive time, who had started the AMs, they, they technically already finished their drive time by the time the race had got started. So there was a question of what's going on with that. Um, so it was a 
interesting way that the race sort of unfolded because of that. Now, throughout the race, the big focus was on the battle for the P2 Championship. Uh, so again, between IDX Sport and G-Drive Racing, it really came down to the wire, and it, and that was because of the the way the race evolved in the middle stint. You ended up having um, the two cars, the number 28 and the number 26, together on track for a period of time, um, just over an hour left in the race. And as it happens, as it tends to do in these situations, the two cars came together. Uh, Johan Ertert, who was driving the... Uh, driving the 26 car, went for a dive on the inside of turn two uh, to make the position, didn't quite get far enough up on Razor, uh, Memo Rojas and made contact with the car, putting it into a spin. Now, the field was spread enough at the point that Rojas only lost about two positions. It was only about, and it wasn't even that significant a spin, it was about a half spin. So it only cost him about 10 seconds on track. But that was enough for the number 26 car to earn a drive-through penalty. Normally, that wouldn't be too bad. They had a significant buffer um, in terms of points and time behind them. But a safety car was called out just before the drive-through penalty was called out. Now, the safety car was for um, the Duquesne engineering car, which had speared off at turn one. Something obviously had broken in that car because normally you don't see a car go straight on at turn one at Algarve. It's a very... The the way you would go off at turn one is much more running wide through the middle of the corner as opposed to spearing straight on. It's not a corner that you're likely to suffer that sort of um, mistake at. So Richard Bradley, who was in the car, was very lucky that he was able to get out without injury. The car was well wrecked, but it did its job to, um, and kept the driver inside safe. And that was the end of the Duquesne Engineering uh, battle. But it did throw a big spanner in the works for G-Drive. Because firstly, it had given IDX Sport a free kick. They had gotten, with the with the field compressing under safety car, the time that they'd lost had effectively been null. Whereas G-Drive, having to take that drive-through penalty, now had the field compressed behind them and dropped out in 8th place. Now, for IDX Sport... They made very, two very good moves just before the safety car, just after the safety car period. Sorry, so they were in second place. It worked out that G Drive needed to finish finish in seventh to, in order to take the championship. If I was to finish second, and G Drive did that, they managed to they managed to get the position on. I think it was the uh, Algarve Racing team, Algarve Pro Racing, um, for that. Uh, seventh place so they were at that stage winning the championship this was with an hour left remember and then something fascinating happened the idex sport car started to reel in the leader it was not that much of a difference between the idex sport car and the united auto sports car for the lead of the race and with um, a tire advantage as well the idex sport car was looking like it would take the race lead now, had in this situation the IDX Sport car won the race, it would all of a sudden change the face of the championship because not only would it give IDX Sports the seven extra points of the win, but because it would then tie the G-Drive car on race wins and with IDX Sport having a higher number of second places, it means on countback, 
I'd export would win the championship if G-Drive finished lower than third. So where G-Drive was in seventh versus where they needed to be in third was a big, big gap on track. And it was not something that it looked like Jean-Eric Verne could overcome. But the, the question marks weren't over because the United Autosport car came back. The tires started to go away on the United Sport car. Uh, Paul Lucatin was struggling to hold the car together at the end of the race. And in fact, at the end of the race, the gap dropped down from over five seconds to less than a second across the last lap. So there was still a big question mark. Could the IDX Sport car, could uh, Paul Chatin bring that car home? And it was by less than half a second that IDX Sport won the race and with it, the LMP2 championship. So fascinating up to the very end of the LMP2 championship in the ELMS. Um, G-Drive Racing came home in sixth place, which was their lowest result of the season to lose the championship at the last race. Now, I wanted to pose the question, did IDEX Sport win the championship or did G-Drive lose it at that last race? And the more and more I think about it, the more and more I think that G-Drive lost the championship. Not not only just with the contact that caused the drive-through penalty for them, but on top of that, their driving lineup, Jovan Ertert, Roman Rusinov, and John-Eric Verne, that's basically an all-pro lineup. They miss opportunities to capitalize on uh, whether it be good qualifying position or good racing or problems for their competitors at... Paul Ricard and at Spa-Francorchamps, especially at Spa-Francorchamps. Remember, that was when the IDEX Sport car wrote off their chassis in the in the practice session and started from last on the grid. And they only finished two spots behind G-Drive on that occasion. Now, had uh, G-Drive done better in that race and you know maximized their advantage, or had they done, say, uh, converted their pole position into a podium finish at Paul Ricard, we wouldn't have even been discussing whether or not IDEX Sport could have taken the championship the last round. It would have been too far-fetched. But because they left the door just a little bit ajar, when push came to shove, the youngest driver in the team made a mistake, which ended up costing them the championship. Uh, and that's nothing to take away from IDEX Sport either. They performed amazing over the second half of the season to take wins at Silverstone and at Portimao um, after their strong start of two podium finishes. But it was honestly a surprise to me that G-Drive could lose that championship and did so um, in that last round. So I think that's more of a G-Drive losing than an IDEC Sport winning. But either way, IDEC Sport should be very well congratulated for their achievement. Um, because I think it is the first time a non-G-Drive branded car has won the ELMS Championship since 2015, I think. 2014, 2015. Which means that as long as I've been watching the ELMS, I've only ever seen the G-Drive car win until this season. So that's a that's a, a pretty funny stat to sort of drop in there as well. Um, at the end of the race, uh, it was United Autosport and Graf Racing who completed the pro, uh, podium. The second United Autosport car came fourth. Algarve Pro with a fantastic drive from John Balb, Olivia Pla, and Andrea Pizzatola in fifth. Then the G-Drive car. Then Panis Bar- the two Panis Bartis cars who'd be maybe a little bit disappointed with the way that their race went. Um, and then Dragon Speed HK, the second Algarve Pro car, I'd, uh, high class racing the skin IDEC car, 
and then Cool Racing and RLR M Sport. Cool Racing uh, had a few problems throughout the race. They had to drive through penalty and had to get yanked out of the um, the gravel. So not necessarily a good race for them. Um, but another interesting bit about this race uh, and this series is that it's the first Michelin LMP2 uh, winner uh, for about that long as well, um, since about 2013. So uh, big change at the top of LMP2 this season. And I think that just goes to show the quality of the field and the quality of the racing, the quality of the series. Because I say, I'll save this discussion a bit later on, but I'd say the ELMS has been the best series of racing to watch this year. So if you haven't been watching it, you definitely should have been. Now, moving on to the LMP3 championship battle. Now, this one was a little easier to digest because really there was no championship scenario. There was no weird funky mass. There was no pole position point to care about. It was... Whoever finished higher out of the number 11 Euro International and the number 13 Inter-Europol competition car win the championship. That's it. Easy as you like. That is the scenario. They're in equal points and that is how it worked out. Now, Euro International had a shocker. They had an absolute shocker. They did not get off the line very well um, after the, the red flag. So after the safety car period, they were buried in the pack and within the first half hour to an hour of full race pace running, they had been lapped by the Inter-Europol car, their direct championship rival. So that was not how they wanted that race to go. Inter-Europol ended up winning the championship by a a large margin. I think they finished second um, behind the 360 race car, which took their first ever race win. So that shouldn't be understated. 360 race have been around for a while in P3. So great for them to get their first race win. But every all the eyes were on the Euro International car and the Inter-Europol car um, for their battle. And Inter-Europol finished second, which was a full lap ahead of the Euro International car. And then was levied a nine-lap penalty for a drive time infringement. So they so they adjusted the bronze requirement or the AM requirement in LMP3 from 1 hour 45 to 1 hour 21 minutes because of the red flag. And Martin Hippe, I think that's how you say that, Hippe, was 16 minutes and 13 seconds short of that adjusted mark. Nine lap penalty immediately saw them fall to the bottom of the uh, the field and lose that championship. The question I had out of all of this is, how do you mess that up? How do you make that bigger mistake? They, because of course there was a red flag, right? And so they um, were concerned about the red flag drive time, but they very confidently swapped drivers early on in the clean green flag run, and then never put Martin Hippie back in the car. So... I don't understand how you can miss a, an adjusted mark that would have been communicated to the teams by by 16 minutes. That's a massive penalty. So that actually loses them the 2020 Lon invite because there's only one for the winner in LMP3. So they miss out for for enter Europol. And so Euro, Euro International take that after finishing, I think it was seventh in the uh, in the in the race. Uh, sorry, it was six in the race for Mikkel Jensen and Jens Pitsen. So 
very lucky for them because they were nowhere. They were nowhere the entire race, and Inter Europol screwed up, handed it to them on a on a silver platter. But yeah, I I'm utterly confused as to how they got that wrong. But in the end, that really just sums up the way that this LMP3 season has been going. It has just been topsy turvy, front to back, back to front for the entire series. And it would not be at all inappropriate for it to be decided by a post-race penalty after the last race of the series because that's exactly how 2019 has gone for sports car racing um so in the end as i, as I made mention of number six 360 racing with their first win in lp3 competition united autosports in the number two car came second and it was the ultimate number 17 car who finished in third place um, just a quick tie on the end of the GTE race was very, very much underwhelming. It was controlled from start to finish by a Lusic racing crew who were really unrivaled throughout the entire event, uh, winning by 50 seconds, even after the last hour safety car. And that was ahead of Kessel Racing and then EBI Motors, who took home third. The Spirit of Race car that needed to win to have a chance of overthrowing the Dempsey Proton car came fourth. The JMW car that needed to uh, finish fourth to overthrow the Dempsey Proton car finished in fifth, uh, eight laps down. And that was the finale of the ELMS. Now, I am going to, to reiterate, the ELMS series this year with 18 prototypes in LMP2 and 13 more in LMP3 and a field of consistently seven to eight GTE cars has been by far the best series that I have watched in 2019. Uh, it has been better than IMSA. It has been better than WEC, uh, whether that be Super Season or Season 8. It's been better than some more series close to my heart, that being the VS Supercars series, um, or even Blank Pen GT, or whatever. I think the only thing that has come close to how good the ELMS has been this year has been the Mission Pilot Challenge, uh, which is the second tier of GT racing in IMSA. Because um, that has just been mental. But I think they are really the only two series that has any claim to the uh, the idea of being the best series of the year. And I would still put ELMS firmly at the top for the quality of racing, the intrigue and strategy, and the, uh, the battles and championship battles we've had throughout the year. So, if you've not watched the ELMS this season, and you're looking for something to catch up on over winter break, definitely get your butts down and watch the, what, six four-hour races, so 24 hours of ELMS. You can knock that out in a day. <laughs> but honestly, though, it, it has been an absolute blast to watch throughout the entire series. Now, I was going to have a discussion here with uh with other people about the highlights and lowlights of ELMS but the uh there isn't really anyone else here to talk to at this stage so I'll just take you through some of my highlights um I think that the the race at Barcelona watching the the Barcelona sunset um driving into the night that was a really cool race to watch um and uh, can I say the entire LMP3 championship as a as a highlight? Honestly, getting to the last race with the cars tied on points for one spot at Le Mans is pretty cool. So I I would say that's a definite highlight. And they were trading punches throughout the series. I mean, if you look at the results for the two cars throughout the series, you know, both of them were on podium in races one and two. Uh, 
you know, second and third for uh, your international over into Europol and then first and second. And then your international had that problem at Barcelona where the engine blew up on them and that really threw them out of contention. In response, they won the next two races. So they fought back extremely hard and they are a deserving winner despite their circumstances of how they won it in the very end. Um, but that was really one of the highlights for me. Another highlight for me has been watching the, um, firstly, Lucic Racing uh, take a debut series victory in the GTE class, where they were just untouchable. They won, remember, this was with success ballast as well. They won four of the six races, and they finished third and fourth in the other two. And, yeah, remember, with success ballast in all of those races as well, they were the heaviest cars throughout the entire series. So they were well, well deserving of that victory. I also want to put a, a big shout-out into the 83 Kessel Racing Team. Uh, for them to jump up to the ELMS as an all-female lineup and to be as consistent and as uh, consistent and as quality throughout the series uh, for them was a really, really good... Uh, how do I put this? Really, really good exhibition of women in motorsports. And they were understandably heartbroken when the car had to retire in the last race and spoiling their chance at a Le Mans, an automatic Le Mans invite. Um, but fishing fourth in the championship with two second places throughout the year is definitely nothing to, to point your nose at, I think is the correct terminology. Um, so they they definitely earned a lot of respect up and down the pack for their uh, for their racing. Now talking about potentially some lowlights of the ELMS season, I think the only thing that I can think of has been the few major incidents that we've had. We've seen uh, I think it was uh, Anthony Connie who had the broken pelvis at Silverstone. There were two massive accidents at Spa-Francorchamps in practice where cars were lifted off track and tubs were written off. Um, the crash for Jack Manchester at uh, Algarve as well in this round. And there was another one I think that he had at Silverstone, which was uh, not not good, which caused him to miss a round, if I am correct. They missed a round or they had to get a secondary chassis for the Carlin car uh, at Silverstone. Um, so, that was that, yeah, the ELMS is marred by some pretty hefty incidents this season. And I think the only other low light for the series for me has been the convergence to the Orica LMP2 car, um, especially the likes of United Autosport, uh, shifting over from Ligier, it kind of for for the Ligier the the proxy Ligier factory team to make that decision to jump ship to the other car really tells you uh, how much of an advantage the Orica has over the uh, the Ligier and the other. That was probably a low light for me to see the the team that has been championing the Ligier uh, have to change in order to stay relevant and. They did end up staying relevant. They took pole position in the last two races of the series and a win in the second place. So you can't say they made the wrong decision um, in that. But it is a little... I don't want to say distressing because it's really distressing, but it's a little... It, it makes me uneasy to see to see everyone converge onto that one platform. 
it's not it's not the point of the class it wasn't the point of the four manufacturers and it wasn't the point of the of hamstring in the development cycle but this is the result that we've got now so that was the elms season i've got to say i'm really looking forward to what happens to elms next year there seems to be a uh not a changing of the guard in elms but there's a definite step up in quality for the european one series and on top of that there seems to be a lot more interest in bringing in new teams and uh, uh, people stepping up from LMP2, uh, sorry, LMP3 into LMP2, like Ultimate and DKR Engineering, um, and a uh, few teams returning, some teams uh, stepping into the WEC uh, for LMS, uh, sorry, let me try again, WEC for LMP2. Um, so, and then, of course, uh, a few teams actually even looking over to IMSA competition for next year. So that will be very interesting. But really, really healthy P2 uh, category across the board. And hopefully we get to see more of that next season um, when the ELMS kicks off in its 2020 season after the prologue test in um, Oricard, I believe it will be. Uh, but... We are, I'm not sure on when that will be, and it will probably be sometime in April, um, I would expect. So we'll see how that goes. Uh, ELMS will be in the off-season until then, but we will have coverage here on Endurance Chat of the Asian Le Mans series in the uh, European off-season. Of course, Asian Le Mans series gets underway later this month with the first race at Shanghai, a week after the... I think it's in fact two weeks after the Shanghai WEC round. Um, and I'm excited to be covering that for the first time because, uh, of course, they're going to my local track at the bend in at the beginning of next year. So we've we've got to talk about some ACO action, yeah, in Down Under because that's really exciting to me. Um, so we will have a preview episode of the Asian Le Mans series coming up, hopefully before the start of the Asian Le Mans series. We have been a, admittedly very tidy with episodes over the last uh, few months. Um, but we're putting together something now in the works, so hopefully we should be ready to go with that before the series comes about. We are also working on an IMSA review uh, that is being firmly thrust into the hands of Cookie Monster, uh, so he will deal with that um, because he has, of course, uh, attended the Petit finale and so is up to speed with all of the happenings in the IMSA world of things. And then, of course, we will have our customary... Uh, WEC Shanghai round wrap up uh, at some point after the Shanghai round because after the Shanghai round we actually have a fairly significant break um, until the Bahrain round of the series actually no we don't it's in December so in fact don't get a significant break at all it'll be five weeks until pretty much from now until the one so Mark them in your calendars. Every five weeks, we've got a WC round going. So we are going to be chock-a-block up until next year's Le Mans. And I cannot wait. So thank you very much for listening. Peace out.